recruiting. So we're having a recruiter today, but not a Marine recruiter, Army Can recruiter. I have one of these? A Kingdom recruiter. So he's going to share with us today his heart, and I'm praying that he, you catch his vision for the world, and that also he challenges us all to level up for our Father. Okay, Brother Tim. Thank you. All right. I think I got oh, it. Oh, you got a mic. You don't need this one. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of who I am. Uh, went to high school in Grand Junction, Colorado, and turned out that I really loved basketball. Had uh, full-ride scholarships to Wyoming, CU, BYU, CSU. Wanted to major in forestry and landscape architecture, so I chose CSU. Sorry about that. I really did like Wyoming. Uh, after CSU, I played basketball for Athletes in Action, part of Campus Crusade for Christ. At that time, only amateurs could play in international tournaments, and so we were selected as the best amateur team in the United States and played all the way around the world, played in the World Cup games and all kinds of tournaments. And uh, God used those trips, and I didn't know it, as short-term mission trips to convict me that there's much more to do outside of the United States than there is inside of the United States. And the needs are so great outside that if I was going to be honest with myself and honest with anybody I talked about, I should go to the area of greatest need. So then we went to seminary and uh, graduated with an MDiv, and then after that we were missionaries in Italy for uh, 27 years. So, if I were with you, I'd say, andiamo a casa mia, facciamo una spaghettata. And I'd say, I'd do that. So I'd say, come to my house and we'll have spaghetti together. <laughs> because this is how you eat spaghetti. And uh, then after um, 27 years, uh, we were asked to come back to be recruiters. Uh, when I was recruited, uh, in 1985 with my wife Janet, and I'd like her to stand at the present time. There was one recruiter with our mission, World Venture, and uh, he was able to get about 30 to 40 couples and individuals every year to go to the mission field. Now, in 2019, our mission has 26 recruiters, and we're able to get about uh, 30 to 40 couples every year, just like the one guy did in 1985. So our context and our world in the United States has changed, and our value and our heart for missions probably has changed as much. When I went out in 1985, there was no such thing as a short-term trip. You went out career. You went out for the rest of your life or for a long time. Now you'll ask a student, um, and he'll say, I want to go long-term, and I'll go, great. Could you tell me what that means? And he will say one year. A long-term in the, the young adult's mind is, is one year. And so there's a lot to do. The missions are still out there. There's a lot of people still unreached. There are 7,800 7, unreached people groups still overseas, and there's a lot to do. So we feel like we're probably doing the most important thing we could do, and that is to challenge people to go overseas to fulfill the Great Commission 
for the glory of God. <clears throat> you see, this is a missionary book. I don't want you to ever th- forget that. And our God is a missionary God. And I don't want you to ever forget that as well. And God wants every member of his church, no matter how old, to become a Great Commission Christian. A Great Commission Christian takes the Great Commission for his job description. It's just not somebody else's, but it's his. And a Great Commission, great commission Christian is also a disciple. And a disciple is a learner. But attention, it's not a learner in the sense that um, you can pass the test and get all A's. No, it's a learner that in whatever situation that you're in, you respond like Jesus Christ. It's that kind of a learner. It's an inherent, one who adheres to the truth. That's a Great Commission Christian. And so you speak like Jesus, you talk like Jesus, you act like Jesus, you go where Jesus goes. You do what Jesus wants you to do. That's a Great Commission Christian. That is an adherent. And that's what God wants for us. In Mark 8.34, there's a verse that says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those are what I call the three exams each day. The three things we must do each day if we are a Great Commission Christian. In Luke 9.23, it's the same verse, but Luke adds the word, he who takes up his cross daily. And so I think these three things we must do each day, they're like calisthenics. Uh, They're like doing our warm-ups, our push-ups. We do these things each day as we become more and more like Christ and as we become more disciplined in the way that he wants us to do. So I'd like to take these three things, the things that we're supposed to do each day, and I'd like to take them in reverse order. So the one I'd like to take first is um, follow Jesus. And the question is, uh, who leads? Who leads in your life? Who leads in our church? Who leads in my life? And that's a question God's asking us each And every day, who chooses where I go and what I do? Um, When the disciples came to Jesus, um, or before they came to Jesus, they picked their jobs. Marriages were arranged, but they picked where they were going to live. They thought they were in control of their life. Jesus enters into their life, and radically, it's shocking the challenge that Jesus gives to the disciples. In Mark 1, 16 through 20, it says, And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called to them, 
And they left their father in the boat with the hired service servants, and they went away to find Jesus. All of the disciples had this type of encounter. Some were rich, most of them were poor. Jesus says, follow me. They followed. That was radical. They answered the question, who leads? They said, yes, Jesus, you lead. But I think, if we're honest, they didn't follow Jesus because they thought he was God. I don't think they followed Jesus because he was omnipotent, omnipresent, that he could do everything, calm seas and break loaves of bread. I don't think they followed Jesus for that reason. I think they followed Jesus because they didn't have any other choice. They were so sick of the Roman Empire and so sick of the tyranny that the Romans placed upon their living situation. Everywhere they went, they were taxed. Romans would come into their homes and rape their wives, rape their teenage daughters. Romans would come and burn their crops, those in the field, those in the barn. They were so sick of Rome that when somebody comes in and says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, one that can do miracles, one that can speak with integrity and who's honest, one who might be a revolutionary, they follow. Because that's all the hope they have is this Jesus. He seems to fit the bill. And I think they followed Jesus because he was a revolutionary. I think it took them a long time, even after his death, burial, and resurrection, and even maybe after his ascension, before they came to the conclusion that this Jesus Christ is God. I think it took them a long time to get to that. But at the meantime, in the journey, they radically and obediently say, yes, you lead, I follow. And I think that was important for them. Ken and Bola were two Filipino young people. They were both born in the Philippines. Um, Bola then moved to the States. Uh, both of them were musicians. Ken was a rocker. Uh, his, um, his model was love, sex, and rock and roll. But he was also a big band director, and he led big bands all through Southeast Asia. He was quite popular. Bola, on the other hand, was a singer, and she wanted to be a top-notch vocalist. So when she was 20, she went back to the Philippines, and she got on with Nora Arnar. Nora Arnar was so popular in Asia that her name was Superstar. And uh, Bola started to sing backup for Nora Arnar. And uh, as uh, Ken and uh, Bola were doing their gigs, they got to know one another. And one time they were in the uh, uh, Singapore together, and they had a coffee together. And they kind of they were kind of liked one another. And and Ken really liked Bola uh, because Bola was mature. And so Ken, even though he has a girlfriend with him on this trip, he asks Bola out. And Bola says, sure, we can go out, but I'm not going to be intimate with any man before marriage. You need to know that. That shocked Ken. And they had a relationship for three years, and during that time they flew back to the States independently, and they hit the music scene in Los Angeles. 
Lots of Filipinos in Los Angeles. Ken came to Christ. Bola noticed a big difference in Ken and liked what she saw. And then after a while, she came to Christ. And uh, they, were, they were excited about it. And uh, they decided that um, they would take a trip to, uh, to Japan as a vision trip. They thought maybe we should do that. They had two little babies at the time. If you look at the screen, this is Ken Bola and their family. And when the girl to your right was in Bola's stomach, womb, uh, they went uh, with those two little babies to Japan for a 10-day trip. Came back. Bola hated it. She said she's never going back to Japan. She said, you're kidding? Why would I go back to Japan? It's a land that is just brimming with people. Everywhere you go, you bump into somebody. It is so expensive, and they don't even speak English. (laughs) Why would I want to go back there when I have a good job? We have two cars. We have a house. We're making the American dream and you want me to go to Japan? What are you smoking? (laughs) And Ken was convinced. God is calling me to Japan. He's leading, I'm following. And uh, Bola said, you got to be absolutely nuts. I am not going to Japan. Well, Ken comes to Bola and says, um, two people united in the covenant of marriage cannot successfully go in two entirely different directions. He told her, we have a house divided here. But I married you. I'm not going to divorce you because you don't want to go to Japan. I just want you to pray about it and seek God. And whenever he tells you to go to Japan, you tell me and we'll go. music has and been popular in Japan for decades. I'd now like you the to fad check has out turned this video. into an effective evangelistic tool. That's right, Lucille Talusan has the story. Historically, it's been difficult to share the gospel with people in Japan. Traditional Japanese faiths like Buddhism and Shintoism have many gods, and people avoid religions that make specific claims like Christianity. Most Japanese worship millions of gods, but through a music workshop, Japanese non-Christians are learning to sing to the only one true God. The movie Sister Act made black gospel music popular in Japan. Eleven years ago, missionary Ken Taylor saw an opportunity to use the fad to teach the Japanese about Jesus Christ. The former nightclub entertainer began holding black gospel workshops in community centers. Ken then partnered with Christian churches, opening doors for developing relationships between the non-Christian choir members and members of the church. The end goal is that we see lives transformed. Within that two-hour session, they're not just learning how to sing black gospel music, but more than that, they're really experiencing church because there's really fellowship, there's worship, there is uh, uh, sharing of the word. The Hallelujah Gospel Ministry broke down barriers between Christians and non-Christians. It opened the church to the community. And it's a very unique ministry because the target of the outreach are the choir members themselves. 
It may be a slow process, but the members testify that the Black Gospel workshops are making them better persons, and some of them convert to Christianity. I used to have low self-esteem. I studied philosophy and did my rituals at Shinto shrine, but nothing worked. But within one year in the choir, I learned about Jesus when I studied the lyrics of the songs. So now I am a Christian. I am more patient with our children, and I am more confident about myself. I am not a Christian, but as I study the words of the songs, I'm finding new meaning in my life. Today, there is a black gospel choir in 50 churches all over Japan. They call themselves the Hallelujah Gospel Family. Twice a year, they come together in a big concert. Where the Japanese non-Christians share the message of Christ to their families and friends through the gospel music they sing. A hundred percent of the people who step into these choirs are being touched by the Spirit of God. God is at work in a mighty, mighty way here in Japan. Lucille Talusan, CBN News, Tokyo. Did you know that was happening in Japan? I did actually. It's a quite an incredible tradition that the Japanese they love black gospel. It's awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. If you look at the next slide, you see uh, Ken and Bola.、Um, unfortunately, about three years ago, Bola died of、uh, brain tumor, and so she's no longer with us. But what's significant about that is、uh, Bola was buried in Japan, and the reason why is she wanted everybody to know that when Christ tells you to go somewhere, you follow Him, and that she wanted to. Be buried in Japan to make that statement that she was following Jesus even up to her last day. Now, if Bola did not go to Japan, that significant ministry, which is probably the most significant ministry that there is in Japan right now in leading people to Christ, would not be happening because Bola refused the will of God. So the first question is, who leads? Who chooses the where? And for Bola, it's God chooses the where, wherever that is, even if it's costly, and they don't speak English. He chooses that. And then we have the second exam that we need to pass every day, and that's the exam: Who chooses what I die to? Take up your cross daily. Who who sits on our throne? Who chooses the things that I die to and the things that I live for? If you look at Mark chapter four, thirty-five, on that day when evening came, he said to them, "Let us go to the other side." Leaving the crowd, they took along with him, and they went into a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now Jesus, before he gets into the boat, is in Galilee, and he has had a, an intense day. He's been in the city of Galilee, and probably there's as many people here in this church 
where, and then Jesus is in the middle of them probably all day long in this city. And people are touching Jesus and they're around him. They want him to know a word from him. They want to be healed from him. They want to see a miracle. And he is just being bombarded with people the whole time, the whole day. So he gets at the end of the day and he says, let's go to the other side. Well, Jesus is peopled out. And being peopled out, he's also pooped out. So he gets into that boat, and the first thing he does is he goes back to the stern, and it must be a, a pretty good-sized boat because all the disciples are on them on the boat, and they're not doing the rowing. It seems like somebody else is, is managing the boat. And there is a bench in the back of the boat, the stern, with a cushion on it, and Jesus plops down on that cushion, and within a second, he's out. He doesn't know anything anymore. He's exhausted. The disciples are going, and it must have been a very, very hot day with a lot of evaporation because the evaporation goes up from the, the lake and it goes up into the atmosphere and it catches some wind and it goes over to the Golan Heights, mountain range of about 10,000 feet. And that warm air hits that cold air and it starts to vortex. It starts to whip, it cranks, it's moving. Then it goes back over to the lake. It gets more warm air. And then it comes back, gets more cold air. And pretty soon we have a tornado. And it comes and it slams that lake. And it's a washing machine out there. There's waves going over the boat, probably 20 feet high. The disciples don't know what to do. They got a bucket and they're jettisoning as much water as they can. They're throwing things off of the boat. They're, they're going crazy. They're, they think they're going to lose their very lives. And, and they are scared to death. Then in verse 41, we see Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? We are perishing. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it was perfectly calm. Two miracles. Jesus says, Peace, hush to the wind. It stops immediately. And the waves become perfectly calm. People who know the sea say that even when the storm passes, the waves are still agitated for several hours, perfectly calm. And he looks at them and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why does he say that? Do you still have no faith? Doesn't that sound like a dumb question? I mean, they're drowning out there. Did you miss it? Did you miss what Jesus said? He says, let's go to the other side. This is the omnipotent, all-sovereign, holy God who cannot lie. And when he says, we're going to the other side, that's exactly where we're going. And it doesn't matter if there's a tornado in the middle of the ride. And so he says, why do you have no faith? Because if they had faith, they wouldn't have said anything because they would have known that Jesus said we're going to the other side and that's where we're going. They were afraid because they were afraid to die. 
And they didn't understand that the omnipotent Savior is right in their midst. And he's in charge of their lives and he's not going to because he said we're going to the other side. And he's the one who we follow and he's the one that we get our life from and then we die to the other things. We even die to our fear and to our anxiety and to our frustration and to all those problems that we have. Cancer may come. We might become bankrupt. We might run into divorce. God said he's going to carry us to the other side, and we have faith that he will do that. Stephanie and Chaz, they were two young people about the same age, and they both went to Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Uh, They were going to go there for a short-term mission trip. Uh, Stephanie was going to go for six months to work with girls that were at risk. Chaz was going to go to work in maintenance and build a building. Chaz went for two years. Stephanie went for six months. They got over there, and they were in the same town, but they were separated by about a 30-minute bike ride. Once in a while, Chaz would go over and ride the bike and see Stephanie, and they became acquainted. Then Stephanie went back home, and then after a while, Chaz went back home. Uh, They started to talk via news uh, via internet and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And they started to talk about Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. And it really got into their heart what they had done, what they had experienced. And there was a people group over there called the Jula. And you can show the slide of the Jula. The Jula are a people group of about 4.8 million people. 99.9% do not know Jesus. The first Christian came to the Lord about three months ago. So they're totally unreached. And we have the men and the women, Jula people. And Chaz and Stephanie began talking about the Jula. Who reaches the Jula people? Who's going to take the gospel of Christ to them? And what happened is Chaz and Stephanie became great commissioned Christians at that point. Because the great commission of reaching the Jula people was no longer somebody else's great commission, but it became Chaz and Stephanie's great commission. And almost every night, Chaz would wake up concerned about the Jula. Who's going to reach them? Have Chaz and Stephanie here, Lily, Lily White family, Adeline, beautiful little girl. Can you imagine taking that little baby into the Jula people? All those black hands touching that baby. That baby's going to become red in a minute. And, and, and all the difficulties. And it's been difficult for Sta- uh, Stephanie and Chaz to get to, to uh, a Cote d'Ivoire. They're not there yet. They're in France learning uh, language, French. And then they'll travel to Cote d'Ivoire to reach the Jewelers by God's grace with little Adeline. Pray for Stephanie. Her arm has been bothering her. It's in a sling. It's some type of paralysis. She doesn't know. But every night and every day they get up and they say, I die to myself. I take up my cross daily. Jesus Christ is the one who chooses what I die to and what I live for. And they pass that test, and they are passing that test every day. So you pray for 
Chaz and Stephanie, as they walked the walk of being disciples of Jesus Christ, they came to, they've come to the conclusion that this is their commission that God has given to them, and they want to fulfill it, and we want to encourage them in doing so. It's a mighty work, and we pray that they'll be very, very successful in it. And then we come to the third exam, and that's the exam. Who chooses my values? Who chooses my values? You ever ask that question? Things you value. Who chooses your core beliefs? Who chooses your worldview? Who chooses those things? Do you choose those things? Or does God choose them for you and you accept them as your core values, as your core beliefs, as your Christian worldview? He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself of what? Basically, of your, your choices of values, your choices of your worldview. If we look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 52, they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to them. Basically, he says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And they're afraid. Why are they afraid? They're afraid because if he dies, they won't have a revolutionary anymore to follow. And they're amazed because why would you ever go back to Jerusalem? That's where you're going to die. What does Jesus value at this point? Mark 10:45, he values death because he knows that in death he will become a ransom for many and that's the only way that he can save people and he values that and he's not afraid of that but the disciples are afraid and they are amazed and they don't even understand why he's doing it. Abraham Curavilla says this is a death march and Jesus is going and he's embracing that because he knows that's the will of God and he's denying himself to fulfill God's purpose to save humanity that is sinful and separated from him. And he's embracing that value. What happens after this? Isn't it incredible what happens after this? Jesus tells them that he's going to die. He's going to give his life a ransom for many. What happens? John and James come up to him and say, can we ask you a question? Uh, we want to be on your left side and your right side on thrones in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine that? What kind of uh, uh, illogical question is this? This guy's going to die and you want to be on the right hand and the left hand. And, and what are they asking for? They're saying our value is prominence. Our value is living for people's applause. We want the money of kingdomship. We want the authority of kingdomship. We want the power of kingdomship. We don't want the service of kingdomship. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. I can't give you those things. He says, can you drink my cup? They say, yes. Can you be baptized in my baptism? Yes. Which both means 
can you die for the sake of Jesus Christ? And they say yes. At the time, they didn't know what they were saying. But later on, they did. And later on, every one of them drank that cup of death and was baptized in that cup of death for the sake of Jesus Christ. But at this time, their values are all messed up. They're all over the place. In fact, the world says, take care of number one. And that's what they were trying to do. Jesus says, take care of the other. Secular greatness says, rule others. Be praised by others. Jesus says, spiritual greatness is measured in serving others. Secular greatness says, listen to WIFM. What's in it for me? Spiritual greatness says, listen to WIFH. What's in it for him? World says, be comfortable, safe. Christ says, do what I tell you. Be uncomfortable like Chaz and Stephanie and like Bola. Be unsafe. And then your reward will be great. If you look at the slide, you see the family, the Schmitz, Roger and Lynn, they're two boys, and then Abigail, who's married to Andrew. Uh, Smiths are in Mozambique. Roger has come to the conclusion that the only and the best way to reach Muslims is to have them live with you. Because if they live with you 24-7, they see how you love your wife, they see how you pick up after yourself, they see how you study the scriptures, they see how you, what your comportment is, and they need to see you 24-7. So Roger and Lynn decided very on in their life that they were going to deny themselves of living by themselves, and they had three Muslim men live with them, and they still have three Muslim men living with them. And they also came to the conclusion that the best way to reach Muslims is to employ them. And so you work with them 45 hours a week. You teach them how to work. You show them how to work. You, you work according to Christ's principles. You, you dominate your life with Christ, and they see that, and they reflect that. And so Roger and Lynn are doing that. You see the first slide here is the slave gate. It's on Mozambique Island, right across the coast of Mozambique. And on every island like this is a slave gate. Because in, uh, during that time, slavery was huge. And they would take the slaves and they'd go out the slave gate. They'd get in boats. They'd get in ships. And then the ships would take them to the Americas and to Britain as slavery. And so there's always this reminder of slavery. And slavery, killing that beast is as hard in Mozambique as it is in the United States. It's always with you, slavery. And they have that reminder of the slave gate. Next slide, please. Roger decided that we have Muslims living with us. Let's have Muslims being employed by us. They bought a bunch of old, beat-up buildings right on the shore, pennies to the dollar. Next slide, please. They decided they'd make a restaurant and a bed and breakfast and a hotel. Not so much to reach the people who come to the hotel, not to reach the people who want to be tourists, but to reach the Muslims who work at the motel. And so nine Muslim men, since this has started, have come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
because they see Jesus being lived out by Roger and Lynn, and they are captivated by their lifestyle. Roger and Lynn deny themselves each and every day, and those Muslim men see that. Next slide, please. This is called the rickshaw, so pray for the rickshaw. Next slide. And then they employ women who come from the island and uh, perform for the guests. They're not too much worried about the guests, but they're worried about these women. It's harder for women in Mozambique to come to Christ than it is men. And they don't know exactly why that's happening, but Lynn is striving to reach these women. And she has constant touch with them as they come to the restaurant to perform. Next slide, please. One of the things that I do is I recruit young men and women to go overseas. This is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has a master, has an undergraduate degree in hotel management, and he has a seminary degree. And he is pouring two years of his life into Roger and Lynn to teach Roger and Lynn how to run a hotel. Roger's getting an M, uh, MBA in hotel management as well to make this as effective as he can because he knows that if people will live with him and people will work for him, he'll have a much greater chance of influencing them for the gospel of Christ. And so he denies himself every day of the pri- privileges of being by himself, having time alone. He's saturated with uh, Muslim people because he loves them. So who chooses what I choose? Who chooses my values? Who chooses what I live for and what I die for? Christ does. Who chooses where I go? Who leads? Christ does. Who chooses what I die for? Christ chooses that. Who chooses the where? Who chooses the what? Who chooses the who? Who chooses the how? We follow Christ wherever, whenever, whoever, because he's worthy. And we have that great commission calling, and it's ours. It's nobody else's. Amen. Amen.